So here we are, our final hour together. What do we make of all this? Uh, Why did we spend the last four hours listening to and discussing the story of American theological liberalism? Uh, Why did I choose to do this with the last year of my life getting ready for this and doing this the last day and a half? Am I just projecting this kind of recovery um, from the movement that I grew up in? Uh, Why did you come? Did you come for curiosity's sake or education to broaden your horizons? Did you come hoping to get some ammunition against conservatives or liberals? Um, Hope that you didn't get any ammunition for that. Um, We might want to ask the question, not why we came, but what we're going to do now that we've come. We are now responsible for what we've heard. How then should we engage liberalism? And to make it concrete, I would say, how do we then engage, I want to turn this off, our theologically liberal families and neighbors and colleagues, coworkers, classmates? There are those in this world who name the name of Jesus Christ and yet desire to be free from the word of God with reference to their mood, their methods, their morals, or their message. How then should we live with them? And to that question, I have five biblical applications for us. Number one, understand them. Understand them. Now, the ultimate goal with any people, liberals included, is to love them. To love them. Love your brother, love your neighbor, love your enemy. Those are all commands in the Bible. But love is not biblical love if it is devoid of the knowledge of your beloved. What makes God's love in John 3.16 so stunning is that he knows the world so well and he loves it in such a costly way so beautifully God's knowledge of the world makes his love of the world all the more breathtaking so in 1 Corinthians 14:20 Paul says brothers do not be children in your thinking be infants in evil But in your thinking, be mature. Why? Um, Because like God, our knowledge is to be pressed into the service of love. Once again, Paul in 1 Corinthians says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The point being that what we have in our brain is lighter fluid for the fire of our heart. If our brains are empty, our love will be cheap and bargain basement. But if our knowledge is full, then our love stands the chance to be deep and comprehensive and wise and mature. So the first step toward answering the question, how then do we respond to liberal theology in America, is do we understand liberal theology in America? Do we know the story? Do we know it well? 
Do we really get what's been happening for three centuries in this country? If we want to arrest the drift of liberal theology, we first need to catch the drift of liberal theology. One step toward remedying this would be reading authors like Gary Dorian, who do an outstanding job of sketching the the story. To that end, I've got some bibliography that you could take home, and I don't recommend Dorian for everyone. Um, But there are things that you can read that are on that list. Read biography. Read biography. It's it's one of the most helpful means uh, toward doing lots of things at once. One of the most, the most helpful biography I read was called Old Brick, and it was the story of Charles Chauncey, the first guy we talked about. Um, as I mentioned, the author Edward Griffin lives here in the cities, and um, wonderful book. On a practical and personal level, I'd recommend, um, this application is, is mainly for uh, you know, conservative Christians, Spend time with folks who are further to the left than you are theologically. Spend time with them. Get to know them. Learn their story. Ask them questions. Ask them lots of questions. If you're going to love them, it stands to reason you'd get to know them. Um, I was expecting more pastors to be here at this point, so if there were other pastors here, this is what I would say. If you're a pastor here, like me, Do you know the names of the progressive and liberal pastors in your area? And if by chance you know their names, do you know their spouses' names and their kids' names? Do you know what they do on their day off? Do you know what they eat at a restaurant? Do you know where they went to school? Do you know why they believe what they believe? First step in engaging someone is seeking to understand them. Second application, appreciate them. Appreciate them. Philippians 4.8 carries within it a command that is life-changing if you apply it to American liberal theology. Here's the command. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So this verse is a call to admire and laud that which is admirable and laudable. Uh, So much of what I saw in my study this past year was that way. Here's a short list of what I came to appreciate. And these are highlights of things you already heard. The 60-year pastoral ministry of Charles Chauncey at First Church Boston. That blows me away. 60 years at his post. The thoroughgoing integrity of Theodore Parker with all the Unitarian ministers wimping out all around him. Horace Bushnell's ability to draw doctrinal lines. The customarily unflagging conservatism of Charles Briggs, unjustly accused of heresy. The technological innovation of Harry Emerson Fosdick, pioneering radio ministry. The zeal and passion of Philip Clayton, This is a sampling of what I've come to appreciate, although I could multiply that over if we had more time. Not to mention how well American theological liberalism has fared in the realm of academia and scholarship. 
This is where liberals tend to have it all over conservatives. In 1995, a conservative historian named Mark Knoll published a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. I've never read it, um, but I understand that his argument is simple. When it comes to the evangelical mind, the scandal is there's not much of one. There's not much of an evangelical mind. And he is an evangelical, which maybe he means he's demonstrating the mind that he's denying. <laughs> and I think the story's gotten better in the last 20 years. I think there's more of an evangelical mind today. But we have to admit that since about 1870, American theological liberalism in Protestant circles has just not known that scandal. Thinking, academic labor, rigorous, thoughtful argument has not been the Achilles heel of American theological liberalism for close to 150 years. They have run the Ivy League. Including, if you include Unitarian Harvard in that story, then American liberal theology has owned the field of American higher education for 300 years. They've been the gatekeepers of so much of our nation's theological higher education. I'm in awe of that. I'm humbled by that. I appreciate that. So the second application in engaging theological liberalism is appreciate them. Just take Philippians 4.8 and apply it in your own relationships and context. Third, empathize with them. Empathize with them. Romans 12.15 says, weep with those who weep. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I am thinking more than ever that Christians these days are people of comfort. If I had time to do another, I will someday do a study on comfort. From Old to New Testament, God offers comfort. Isaiah 40, comfort, O oh comfort my people. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. And we are indwelt by that Holy Spirit, the comforter, and he comforts us with the express purpose that we might offer that comfort to those in any affliction with the very comfort with which we are comforted by God. Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. One of my favorite songwriters is Michael Kelly Blanchard, who wrote these lines in a song called In From the Cold. Blanchard writes, Maybe I'm crazy, but give me the one who started as a baby without a home. I need a God who's been there and back, walking this sod with a cross on his back. Someone who's real when it comes to the soul, who knows how it feels to come in from the cold. In from the cold, out of the wind, surviving's as old as breathing. All of creation is your next of kin when you're out in the cold and you want to come in. At another point in that song, Michael Kelly Blanchard says, I've been looking for a womb since the day I was born. Examples abound in the history of American theological liberalism of people who have stood out in the cold. Looking for a womb since the day they were born. If you can honestly hear the story of Charles Chauncey's protective, 
unflinching, watchman-like care over New England churches in the face of the Great Awakening. If you can listen to the story of young William Ellery Channing or Walter Rauschenbusch or Elizabeth Cady Stanton's experiences with their fathers, Charles Briggs's unjust heresy trial, the vacuum of family worship that occurred in Langdon Gilkey's home, if you can honestly hear those accounts and you're not moved with some form of empathy, you are not a Christian. When we hear these accounts, it's better to follow the instruction of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3.12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. What should we do with liberals? Empathize with them. 1 Corinthians 4.7 says, For who sees anything different in you? What did you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Which brings us to our fourth application. What are we to do with theological liberals? Confess your sins to them. Confess your sins to them. Here I'm thinking of our Lord's words to us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck? You don't notice the log? Okay. How can you say, let me take that speck out of your eye. You got a log in your eye. (laughs) Take the log out, right? The logs of conservative Christians are legion. Ungodliness, anxiety, sinful anxiety, sinful frustration, discontentment, unthankfulness, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience and irritability, self-righteous and short-fused anger, judgmentalism, Jealousy. The list goes on and on. Wrath, greed, sloth, pride, lust, envy, gluttony, the seven deadly sins. Those are the seven daily sins of most evangelical Christians. Evangelicals and fundamentalists are typically not as guilty of a liberal message. I grant that. We tend to have our doctrine correct and tidy. But our mood... Our methods and our morals can be reprehensible. If you follow the pattern, if you know the story of American liberal theology, that is the very cocktail that gives rise to real doctrinal liberalism of the real sort at some point down the line. It's very cool to sort of scoff at the slippery slope today. Uh, don't scoff at the slippery slope. It's real, it's very real. And there are very real roots here for doctrinal liberalism, and we all live on that slope. Why are evangelicals so liberal in these other areas? It's indefensible. Evangelicals and fundamentalist Christians ought to have the market cornered on love. We are the ones who wield the sword of the Spirit. Why don't we more consistently exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? Why? What excuse could we possibly offer? Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our instruction is love. 
that issues from a sincere, uh, a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of our instruction is not more instruction. The aim of our instruction is not hurting people. The aim of our instruction is not being right. The aim of our instruction is not winning an argument. That's not the aim. The aim of apostolic instruction is love. So, learn enough from the history of American theological liberalism to see the plank speck dynamic of this thing. <laughs> uh, theological liberals may be in a hurry to be free from God's word and its message, but conservative Bible believers have been all too guilty of the desire to be free from the word of God in our mood, our methods, and our morals. I haven't touched on much on the story of evangelicals and method. Good night. If I did, we'd be here longer. Pragmatism. This is maybe an overstatement. The most blatantly pragmatic movement in the American church today, in my personal opinion, is our own. Evangelicalism. People are asking what works, whether or not it's right. We want what draws a crowd. I'm increasingly afraid that we will not do what it takes to build a church. Most evangelicals are captured for a desire to be cool, not a desire to love. Biblical love is often profoundly uncool. So the point here is confession. What's the best way to engage theological liberals? Confess your own liberalism. Identify with them and your desire to be free from the word of God. Confess your sins. And 1 John 1.9 holds the promise for us. Now this is great because John is an apostle and he uses the word we here, which means he includes himself. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So your liberal family members, your ministry colleagues, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers and classmates need to see you doing business with the gospel like this. The gospel's for believers. Romans 1.15 says it's so. So confess your plank, take out your log. Now Jesus says in Matthew 7.5, when you take the log out of your own eye, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So there's one more application for us. And it's this, correct them. Correct them. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 22-24 calls us to correct them. Notice I didn't say criticize them. There's a difference. There's a world of difference. It's not enough just to disapprove of someone or to censure them. Complaining and carping are not the same thing as correcting. Correction is redemptive. It's hopeful. It's helpful. It's what love does. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 22-24 shows us the way. Listen to the inspired Apostle Paul. This is God's word, and he's, he's just mentioned two heretics, Hymenaeus and Philetus. I think it's those two. You'd have to double-check my work on that, but he's talking about heresy here. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, 
leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Don't misread me about all these applications. I know we've tightened the screws pretty tightly on on our room this morning. You need to hear this because the Bible teaches this. False teaching, heretical doctrine, it's the work of men and women who have been captured by the devil himself to do his will. It stands in need of correction. This is serious business. So how do we deal with this? Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 22 to 24 is incredibly helpful. Three verses. The first verse and a half show us our role in this. Second verse and a half show us God's role in this. God will not do what he demands that we do, but we cannot do what only God can do. Uh, So uh, once again, 2 Timothy 2, 22 to 23 A, this is our job. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So by God's grace, in the strength that he supplies, freshly forgiven of your own sins, here's what you do. Don't quarrel. Be kind to everyone. Teach, patiently endure evil, correct opponents with gentleness. That's it. It's remarkably simple. That's our work. Now, when it comes to correction, there are seven magic words that I learned many years ago that have borne fruit in our congregation time and again. I would trademark them, except they're not mine. (laughs) I learned them from C.J. Mahaney. Would you be open to an observation? You're asking someone who's theologically liberal, would you be open to an observation? If they indicate that they're not, respect their answer. Consider first whether you've earned the right to ask them that question. Have you sought to understand them, appreciate them? Do you have empathy for them? Have you confessed your sins to them? Do they know that you love them and have their best in mind? The first four steps typically grease the skids for those seven words. Would you be open to an observation? If they indicate that they are open to an observation, which if they know you love them, it's shocking how far you can go and speak in truth when you speak the truth in love. Um, If they indicate that they're open, be biblical in your comments. Concentrate on the matter of first importance, the gospel. or what Jesus called weightier matters of the law. Beyond that, be direct. Seek to be helpful. Show people areas of... Doc, uh, show them that the errors in doctrinal uh, matters matter. <laughs> Explain to them the cash value of getting doctrine right and the great peril of getting it wrong. So in brief, don't just get the content of your correction right. Get the tone right. Just like Paul says, kind, patient, gentle. That's our role. Now the second half of the text explains God's role. 2 Timothy 2, 23b to 24. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses after and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I hope you believe that, that God grants repentance. That's 
He's got the whole world in his hands. And he's got the ability to grant repentance in his hands. Repentance is sorrow over sin, grief over sin, a sincere renouncing of sin, and a sincere desire to turn from it and walk in the direction of holiness. God has the power to give that to people. God grants repentance. Um, And the Bible commands repentance, which is kind of confusing. Um, Charles Bridges once said, God's commands do not imply our power to obey, but our grace upon him, our dependence upon him for the grace of obedience. His commands do not imply our power to obey, but our dependence upon him for the grace of obedience. Um, Sincere sorrow, godly grief over sin, that's God's work. I think that's part of why it's called godly grief in 2 Corinthians 7. And Paul assures us that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So God can do that. He can grant people repentance and faith. But you ask, how often does it happen? Like in the final analysis, how often does this actually happen? A theological liberal coming to the point of godly grief and repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth, coming to their senses, escaping the snare of the devil. How often does it happen? I don't know. I'm just living proof that it happens. 15 years ago. Others in this room that grew up in liberal churches liberal thinking. As I've said in this church, I could have rehearsed the apostles and Nicene creeds backwards in Swahili to you, along with the prayer of St. Francis thrown in for good measure. And when I was 21 years old, God granted me repentance. He did. I met Jesus. And I've been walking with him for that time. God granted me repentance. And he did it as the Lord's servants, who were not quarrelsome, came alongside me. They were so kind. And they taught me, and they patiently endured my evil. They corrected me with gentleness. And I'm far from alone. Uh, probably other people in this room that have grown up in these movements. Um, if you want to read some stories that are out there on uh, conversions like this, read the story of a biblical scholar, Etta Linneman. Her story is inside your reading there. Or more well-known on the surface today uh, in the news is Kirsten Powers. Uh, Grew up in the Episcopal Church, converted uh, journalist. Hip-hop artists like Trip Lee, who grew up in Dallas, up to his eyeballs in Bible Belt Christianity, met Jesus when he was about 14 years old, long after he'd been in church. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So do I think we ought to evangelize theological liberals? Oh my, yes. I'm so glad somebody evangelized me. It's just that while we're at it, while we're evangelizing, let's evangelize ourselves. Uh, Be a Christian who celebrates and demonstrates the good news of Jesus Christ all the time. Celebrate him, demonstrate him, because then and only then will you communicate him with power. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You serve what's in your cupboard. So what do we do with theological liberals? Well, understand them, appreciate them, empathize with them, confess your sins to them, and correct them. Do it by preaching the gospel to them and preach the gospel to yourself most of all. I'd like to close with one final exhortation. 
through a wisdom parable that Jesus told. It's the one we read at the very beginning. Matthew 7, 24 to 29, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. Great was the fall of it. Matthew comments, uh, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Two houses, two men, two foundations, two storms. These are what the two stories have in common. And the difference between wisdom and folly is the sort of foundation. Each one. The only difference in the story is the foundation they built on. One man, the foolish man, chose upon hearing the words of Jesus not to do them. Notice, this is the error of theological conservatives as well as theological liberals. Hearing a sermon from the Sermon on the Mount is not the same thing as living the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Becoming sermon-proof. Um, Matthew reminds us at the end of the parable that the words of Jesus are astonishing because he teaches as one with authority. Just a reminder that the one with authority, that one, Jesus, believed the Bible. He believed the whole thing. Jesus' doctrine of Scripture might be higher than any of ours. Jesus felt like it's just no point in trying to rend asunder what God has already joined together. Listen to him talking to the Pharisees in John 5, 39 to 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have that life. We're going to see this tomorrow morning. This is our text tomorrow morning. Far from being a condemnation of the scriptures, it's a commendation of the scriptures. Jesus' point was, if you want me without Moses, you don't have me. So people who want Jesus and not the Bible, I fear, don't even have Jesus. Okay, But people who have the Bible don't always have Jesus. Pharisees were that way. In Jesus' affirmation of the Scriptures, he's saying the Scriptures testify to me. So we can't get out of this by saying we love Jesus and not the Bible. Jesus loved the Bible. (laughs) And he loved the Bible because it's a pathway straight to him. Every story whispers his name. So either way, liberalism is the desire to be free from the word of God, the word of God inspired, or the word of God incarnate. Either way, freedom from the word of God in our moods, methods, morals, or message. And to commit our lives to liberalism is to build our house upon the sand, a house that will not stand when the storms of this life come, Or, I think more specifically, what Jesus was referencing there is the storm of God's judgment at the end of this life. That's what Jesus was talking about, I think, with the storm. If you're building your house on the sand, I'm calling you to turn from that project. (laughs) Stop building on the sand. Abort your building plans. Instead, build on the rock. Hear the word of God. 
Believe the word of God. Treasure the word of God. Study the word of God. Meditate on the word of God. Obey the word of God. And teach the word of God. And when you teach it, preach it, and counsel it, and live it, do it clearly, plainly, earnestly, humbly, manifestly, so that all who watch your life and hear your words can follow that truth trail back to the scriptures, which contains chapters and verses and words that are to be believed. Because only the word of God written leads God's people to God's word incarnate. And it's that word, it's that word that gives birth to faith, salvation, worship, love, hope, wisdom, joy, help, beauty, mission, and a worldview that will steady you for the days to come. And you're going to need that anchor in the days to come. Not only that, a worldview, but a vision of heaven. If you believe what the Bible says about heaven, it'll take you through anything our culture is bringing our way. Until, in the words of John Bunyan, you reach the celestial city and all the trumpets sound for you on the other side. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the word. Your word written, your word incarnate. As we think about this topic, please help us to understand the real people on the other side of this. Help us to appreciate them. Help us to empathize with them. Help us to confess our sins as appropriate and congruent to who we are uh, to them. And then help us not to be afraid to correct them. Be with us as we talk now. Do a few more applications and we close. In Jesus' name, amen.